Hello, and welcome to the latest DAC Beechcroft Lawcast. My name is Emma Fuller, and I'm Head of Motor and Casualty Market Strategy for the Claim Solutions Group of DAC Beechcroft. In this series, Helen Mason, who is Head of Vehicle Hire and Damage, is joined by a number of colleagues to discuss the latest hot topics from our recent Credit Hire annual workshop. Welcome to our DAC Beechcroft Credit Hire podcast mini-series. I'm Helen Mason, Head of Credit Hire, and today I'm joined by James Keogh, partner in our Birmingham Credit Hire team. We've got four editions that have covered all of the areas we discussed at our recent Credit Hire workshop. So already we've talked about electric vehicles and intervention strategy, as well as fixed recoverable costs. And last week you heard from Kelly and Michael about Celtic claims. In this third edition, Um, James and I will be discussing pre-action disclosure strategies and applications. So pre-action disclosure applications, or PADS for short, as you may hear us talk about today, um, in respect of securing impecuniosity evidence, have been around for a number of years. And on the whole, insurers, when they've made them, have been successful at first instance. But as we all know, despite all of those first instance decisions, credit hire companies can still force insurers to make those applications due to lack of um, further decisions in the higher courts. That is until very recently in the decision in Holt and Alliance. So James, I guess the first question is, how helpful is that decision? Well, the decision was helpful to a degree as it firstly reinforced the court's appetite for PAD applications. And more importantly, it also clarified the correct parties to issue such an application. So while it's been helpful, what the decision didn't do was give an unfettered right to insurers to make PAD applications. So what advice then can you give our audience about picking the right case? Yeah, this is a real critical part in any decision on making a PAD application. Um, It's really important that any application meets uh, a four-point test um, that's contained in, in CPR 31 to ensure it's successful. The first part of that test is that the parties to the proceedings must both be likely to be named as a party in future proceedings. Second, the application must be supported by evidence. So here we're looking at higher agreements, correspondence where this financial disclosure has been requested and it sets out the reasons for the required disclosure and ultimately how that will help narrow the issues in dispute to bring the case to conclusion. The third part of the test is the application for financial disclosure must be desirable before proceedings have started to dispose of any anticipated proceedings and to assist in resolving the dispute or to save the costs. Finally, if all of the above points can be satisfied, then any application must be for an order which the court has the power to make. Okay, so that's really helpful. But what else do we need to know? So points two and three that are touched upon in terms of the application being supported by evidence and the application being desirable are inextricably linked as the court's primary concern is whether by the court ordering the pre-action financial disclosure, this will enable the parties to be able to reach settlement of the matter without recourse to any further litigation. If, for example, there were some other arguments such as liability being in dispute or an argument around need and the claimant had um, access to other vehicles, 
those issues would prevent settlement so the court would be less minded to grant a pad application for impecuniosity documentation but let's have a little look in more detail about the specifics of this four-point test firstly who are the correct parties to a pad application well as just mentioned, it's been answered in Holt and Alliance, as while the respondent in any PAD application would always be the hirer, as they're likely to be the party named in the proceedings and ultimately the one whose financial disclosure matters. The position's been a bit more clouded around who the correct applicant should be, as the application could be either for the insurer themselves or the insured, as ultimately both have potential to be named in future proceedings due to the provisions of the Road Traffic Act. Holt and Alliance has now confirmed that the correct applicant for a PAD application is either the insured or to issue it in both the insurer and the insured's name. Thanks, James. That's good to know. So now to go on to tell me about the evidential requirements that need to be satisfied if we're going to be successful. Yeah, sure. So as we touched upon, the application must be supported by evidence. So this means the higher documentation in proof of the higher charges claimed by the respondent and then copies of letters from the insurer and, if appropriate, legal representatives requesting the financial disclosure prior to making any PAD application. It's really imperative that where the respondent is not legally represented, the initial letter requesting disclosure and warning of an application is not only served on the respondent themselves before making the application, but also the higher company or appropriate legal representative. This then brings us on to the third limb of the test, which is whether the application is desirable. Okay, so how am I going to know whether my application is desirable? And I've got a sneaky suspicion we might get a bit techie at this point. <laughs> we uh, we will indeed. There will be there will be a quote from from a judge that I that I will go through. But it's a very important quote to bear in mind because the desirability of the application is what really lies at the heart of it, as the application itself must prove that it will allow insurers or their legal representatives to dispose of the claim swiftly, and allow the matter to be settled, or at least to substantially narrow the issues in dispute. So here comes a bit of the techie part. Mr. Justice Baker in the Holton Alliance judgment at paragraph 84 clarified the test. He stated that the proper test to be applied was whether requiring the disclosure to be given before proceedings have been commenced offered a real prospect in principle of assisting the dispute to be resolved without proceedings and with savings on costs. In this case, based upon the correspondence of the parties, it was deemed that there was no sensible room for the conclusion that impecuniosity was anything other than the central issue and probably the key real issue. However, as I've touched upon, that may not always be the case. It's therefore important that insurers, before making any application for pre-action disclosure of impecuniosity evidence, consider the elements of the claim. If impecuniosity is the main issue of the matter by reason of rate or duration, then it would be reasonable to make the application. But if you had need or liability arguments, then the application would not resolve the dispute. So it's really important that insurers consider all the facts of the case. So do we have to ensure the application is also an order that the court can make? 
Yes. Despite the position in Derilia Boja and the CPR being that the claimant must properly plead and prove their impecuniosity within their statement of case, it's not the case that we can request this uh, evidence within a pre-action disclosure application, i.e. that the claimant confirms whether they're going to rely upon impecuniosity or not. The reason for this is that simply it's forcing the claimant to put forward a pleading prior to litigation commencing. As such, the court do not have the power to order a claimant to plead something prior to proceeding starting. And thus, any application that said the claimant is to plead whether they're impecunious or not would fail. In the case of Hulk, there was a ground of appeal sought by the respondent and hire company, stating that the respondent should first confirm that they intended to raise impecuniosity as an issue. It was expressly dealt with by Mr Justice Baker that this ground should not have been raised as it was an indulgence favouring the respondent and hire company. Alliance were entitled to the order for documentation it had sought and the drafting allowing an unnecessary favour to the respondent and hire company was decided by Mr Justice Baker not to be apt or helpful. An application should instead request that the claimant do provide their disclosure in support of their financial documentation. So what we're talking about here is the actual bank documentation, credit cards and, and savings, as this is an order that the court can make as these documents would fall under the standard disclosure should the claim litigate. Thanks, James. So I guess we've dealt with the four point test under CPR 31, but who should be served with the application and how should it be served? This is a real critical part of the application um, because it is really important that we make sure service is correct. Firstly, the application must be served upon the respondent or if they're legally represented, their legal representation. Again, if we've received a nomination for service of the application, it's imperative that we do serve it on the party that said that they will accept service. What we therefore recommend as best practice to ensure the application is successful is that it is served directly on the respondent via post and email if possible. And a copy is also sent to the credit hire organisation via post and email for their attention if they are not legally represented. This will avoid any argument over defective service or no service. What will then happen is when the application is made to court, the court will then seal the application and issue an application notice with a hearing date on it. Again, it's really important that when you get the application notice issued by the court that you provide this to the respondent or the credit hire company, again, if they're not legally represented. If they are legally represented, then obviously send that as well to the legal representatives for it. If you do have the case that the respondent is not legally represented and you are serving on them and the credit hire organisation, it's really important that you serve this notice of the application being issued as soon as possible and file a certificate of service as well with the court. This might sound a very belt and braces approach to ensure the application is successful, particularly where a respondent is not legally represented as the court will, in effect, scrutinise the application where the respondent is a litigant in person and to ensure that they had proper notice of the application and time to respond to the same. 
Thanks, James. I think we know from practice within litigation that, you know, where the service point is is spot on, then, you know, these applications, you know, will, will be successful. So it's really kind of good to go over that to make sure that um, everybody's giving themselves as much opportunity to get the result that they that they need from the court to get their hands on the documentation that essentially is needed to, to take a view and, and make the right offer. So we pay the right amount at the right time. Um, now, one of my favourite questions to end with is, is what else? <laughs> I had a feeling you might be, be asking me this question. Well, as I've said before, it's about considering all the facts of the case uh, and, and the individual case that you have, have before you, because as I've said, Holt and Alliance does not give an unfettered right to insurers to make PAD applications. At DAC Beechcroft, we consider that PAD applications should only be made on cases where the higher claimed is £10,000 or more, or there is a personal injury claim combined with a higher claim effectively ensuring the matter is at least a fast track value as this ultimately goes back into the the reason for trying to save costs. PAD applications generally are not considered to be appropriate by the courts for small claim value higher cases due primarily to the fact that costs on small claims are much less than the cost of making a PAD application itself pre-issue. As such, an application on a small claims value higher case would not be proportionate or reasonable in the circumstances. So you've got your fast track case uh, or a case where there's personal injury and higher. What other steps should you look to take prior to instructing your panel to make a pre-action disclosure application? Well, firstly, it's important that you actually conduct your own searches and try to ascertain whether the claimant may prove impecuniosity or not. Some searches that you can run, for example, are Google Street View and Zoopla. This will give you a real flavour for the claimant's house and whether they will be able to establish impecuniosity or not. Zoopla in particular will tell you the purchase price the claimant roughly paid for the home as well as its current value. I don't need to probably go any further than to say if there's a garden with a washing machine and a flower grown out of it, it's highly likely the claimant may be impecunious and as such an application may not be warranted compared to a five-bedroom house with gates on. Equally, a Google Street View search may show other vehicles within the claimant's household. And while that doesn't automatically stop you making a PAD application, what it should do is that it should enable your processes internally to take more time to carry out investigations into those vehicles and whether the claimant had access to them prior to making any PAD application. Perhaps the most critical question for insurers to bear in mind prior to instructing panel for a PAD application is whether the disclosure of impecuniosity or confirmation that it is not going to be raised will enable the matter to be settled without the need for litigation. If not, then we would not recommend such an application. So again, consider all the facts of the case. It's really imperative that applications are only made on cases where financial disclosure would genuinely narrow the issues that are in dispute. As I've said before, if we are challenging the claimant's need to hire in its entirety or liability for the accident, it could not reasonably be said that financial disclosure would narrow the issues to facilitate settlement as we would continue to challenge need or liability regardless. When implemented properly, 
there is much value to making a pre-action disclosure application. Over the years of carrying out this strategy, we've seen an increasing number of positive responses, whether that be disclosure without the need for an application or confirmation that impecuniosity is not being relied upon. At resolution, either with or without an application, there is the benefit of an appropriate Part 36 offer being made based on a basic high rate report, which provides the possibility of a cost recovery to the insurer if that offer is not beaten. The alternative, if impecuniosity is made out through the financial disclosure that we've obtained via the PAD application, is we're able to settle the higher claim pre-litigation and thus reducing costs and also saving time. Whilst the decision in Holt and Alliance does not mean that impecuniosity documentation should be provided on every case prior to litigation, it does support the need for such issues to be appropriately addressed where impecuniosity is the central issue in the case. This can only be a positive in promoting early settlement without the need for litigation and a card on the table approach, allowing the parties to properly understand the case they face before court proceedings are required. And this is something that's touched upon in the, the Relay Court of Appeal judgment. Overall, while the decision in Holt and Alliance is helpful in terms of the fact pad applications for impecuniosity can be made, and we now have an appellate decision addressing this issue, there are still a significant number of traditional arguments raised by credit hire companies as to why the impecuniosity argument does not need to be addressed pre-issue. And what, again, Holt and Alliance does is that it effectively rules these arguments out. It's perhaps worthwhile remembering for insurers that while Mr Justice Baker ultimately did allow Auxilis's appeal on a technicality, namely that Alliance were the named applicant as opposed to Alliance's policyholder, he did state that had the initial PAD application been made in the name of Alliance's insured, he would have dismissed the appeal and endorsed every aspect of his honour Judge Harrison's decision to grant the pre-action disclosure sought. This is a real helpful message should insurers still meet resistance to impecuniosity requests pre-issue. Uh, thanks James. I think hopefully now we all know what we need to do to make a successful pre-action disclosure application. Um, join me next week um, which will be our last in the Credit Hire podcast mini-series when I'll be talking to Yian Poole, Associate and Credit Hire Strategic Lead, talking about repairs and the use of green parts.